Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice. I am your host, Wendy Nystrom. Today's special guest is Nicole Nicole Gardner. She is the retired vice president of global services and a board member of the Foundation for Climate Restoration. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. I am too. Um, you've had a very unique and extraordinary background working at IBM Global Services, part of their digital transformation, but now you're focused on climate. So what caused that transition for you to go from you know IBM and tech to focusing on our climate issues? Well, um, even before IBM, uh, I focused on tech and how it can impact the world. In fact, I spent 14 years at the United Nations writing a, a standard for electronic data interchange that would change the way we do global commerce. And so I have uh, a deep background in global movements, and mm -hmm. I did a lot of global work at IBM. When I retired, uh, I had time to think about how did I want to spend my time. Um, retirement, or I like to call it rewirement, is a transition and it is an interesting time of life. It's actually a really fun, exciting time of life. And it gives you an opportunity to look back at what you've done and what you've accomplished and what your skills are and how can, in my case, how could I use those skills in that background to make a contribution to the world, try to continue making the world a better place. That was a big thing about my work at IBM. I worked in health, I worked in, um, in digital transformation, and I wanted to continue to be able to do that. And when I looked at the world, and there are a lot of really important things going on, lots of places and ways you can contribute, but for me, climate change is the existential threat. Yes. If we're not here, none of it matters. And it really is that simple. If we don't survive, then, you know, all these other wonderful things, they aren't going to matter. And so I started there. That's how I got here. And it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, working at IBM, and you said you focus on health and with the UN, you have a very rich background. And then most people when they retire would think, okay, I'm, I'm just going to chill out now. I'm just going to go golfing for the rest of my life. You decided to move forward and, you know, starting your work with um, climate restoration. Could you tell people what the Foundation for Climate Restoration is and what you guys are doing there? Sure. But I just want to, I want to back up for one second. Yeah. I actually think that's a myth. I don't think most people stop and just start golfing. Um, I, I think most people, <laughs> most people my age and older, the people that I know, um, there are very few of them that have kind of like just stalled out. Uh, most people continue to look at what can they continue to do? What can they do that's more a passion versus a demand? And yeah. so, um, you know, when I think about my son and hopefully someday grandchildren, I want my younger generation and, and those that come after to have a livable environment, food to eat, water to drink, uh, gorgeous yeah. nature to enjoy. So, you Care know, to breathe. Air to breathe, air to breathe. So anyway, um, uh, so I, I, uh, I, I join. I was invited to join uh, the board of climate restoration um, because I have this UN background and because I understood digital transformation and what technology can do. And so that was a skill that was very much needed um, in our, in our table, and. The, climate, the Foundation for Climate Restoration has some very specific objectives. So there's a lot of great climate work, uh, climate change 
uh, fighting work going on, trying to figure out how we can uh, address the tremendous challenges that the whole globe is facing. Yeah. Um, however, uh, what's missing is understanding what it will take to get to a survivable climate environment ecosystem. So there's a lot of conversation and, you know, we have the Paris Accords and we have what everybody talks about with regard to net zero, but lots of people have heard the bathtub uh, analogy, but in case people haven't. So if you think about the earth sitting in a bathtub and CO2 coming out of the faucet, we've had that faucet on wide open for decades. And the problem is we have filled the tub up and it's starting to overflow with CO2. Yeah, there are a thousand gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere. And what people need to understand is CO2 has a long shelf life. It can last for a thousand years. Oh, yes. Like methane, which can disperse and oxidize in about 20 years. CO2 doesn't leave us. Uh, and so that's a big problem. So if you think about that bathtub and the accumulation, uh, the earth is suffering. And as a result, we are suffering. So we need a three-pronged approach. We need to, first of all, we need to shut that uh, faucet off. We need to a viable, renewable strategy, and we need to find that tipping point and get ourselves to the point where we can wean ourselves off of uh, fossil fuels. In the meantime, we do need a net zero strategy, and a lot of people are working on that. But the unfortunate part about net zero is it does not address the CO2 in the bathtub. True. And that's the third prong. We must pull the drain out of the bathtub and, and drain it. We need to get that CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequester it. And, and we, we need to do that with solutions that are scalable because a thousand gigatons is a big problem. Financeable, we got to figure out how we're going to pay for it. And it needs to be permanent, meaning yeah. it can't leak out, you know, a few years later. So um, the, mm -hmm. the foundation is working hard to try to get people to understand that equation, but also to understand the urgency. We don't have decades and decades and decades to study it and figure it out. The, the mission of the foundation is to get this word out when the hearts and minds of the world, let's start here in the US, and get us into a position where we have scalable solutions ready to rock and roll, tested and validated in whatever ways they're necessary by 2030, so that we can take somewhere between 30 and 50 gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere for 20 years and restore 300 parts per million of CO2 and one part per million of methane in the atmosphere. And that will give us a chance to, as it's coming down, then yeah. we will hopefully get into a regenerative process and the earth can heal. And that's going to take a long time. It's not going to happen quickly. No, it's not. But, but, but there will be relief, you know, during the pandemic at the beginning and like the first year when everything was shutting down and we saw all these incredible improvements in air quality and fish returning yeah. and, all, and people were going, what's going on? Well, you know, <laughs> it was pretty clear what was going on and there will be um, incremental improvement as soon as we can get these things back in order. 
but it's going to take a long time for um, the, the climate to really be restored. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And I love the fact you mentioned that, um, you know, we don't have decades and decades and decades to this. We have known about this for decades and decades and decades, just chose not to. We have plenty of data. We have extraordinarily intelligent people who have been working on this. So quite honestly, we have the information we need. We know that, as you said, the earth is saturated in CO2. And when people say, oh, well, the earth, you know, had high CO2 in the past. True. The earth was also hotter in the past. We were not here. Right. Ice ages. We were not here. We, we did not exist, so therefore the planet will continue. We just won't be part of it. That's what we're trying to deal with. And then, um, you know, talking about your three-pronged approach, this is not a one-solution problem. We need multitudes of solutions. Um, so one of the things with CO2 that is a hotbed topic as of late is carbon catcher, capture. Um, some people hate it. Some people love it. Some people don't know what it is. Could you explain um, simply what, what it means? Well... Simply, it means taking carbon out of the atmosphere, out of the air, and sequestering it. And if you're in Iceland and you have climbworks there and you have seen these huge machines that are pulling, sucking air in and extracting the CO2, that's, that is an example of carbon, uh, direct air capture, a direct carbon capture, sorry. Um, however, the, the issue with those solutions is multi-faceted. Number one, they are incredibly expensive, really, yeah. really expensive. And I know there are a lot of people who are talking about setting up uh, direct air capture farms across the U.S. and there people are looking at all of that and that's awesome. However, it also is not very cost effective, meaning that the, the amount of CO2 they can take out is not um, overwhelming and mm -hmm. is not going to get us to that 30, meg 30 gigaton removal rate that we need over the next 20 years. Um, so it means, so simply take car take carbon out of the atmosphere. How do you do that? You know, sucking the air in is one way. Another way is, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, seafood, uh, seafood, seaweed, uh, <laughs> which is seafood um, uh, projects <laughs> out there. Um, can we get that to scale? in the amount of time that we have uh, to be able to do that. And there are a lot of people discussing that. Another one, which is a little controversial, is called ocean iron fertilization. And that is mimicking what nature already knows how to do. Well, all these solutions, um, all these nature-based solutions, whether it's planting trees, whether it's seaweed, whether it's, you know, and kelp is seaweed, um, and whether it's ocean iron fertilization, these are all nature-based solutions, meaning they are replicating what Mother Nature has been trying to teach us and trying to do it at a faster, more accelerated, more concentrated way. Yeah. OIF is trying to replicate what happens when a volcano erupts in the, for instance, in the Pacific, which happened in the Philippines, Mount Pinatubo in 1991. By the way, uh, sand that comes off the uh, Sahara Desert is also doing this into the Atlantic, only it's not <laughs> at scale. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not uh, monitored and measured the way, uh, the way you could do it um, if, if we do it. So when that happened in the Philippines, uh, a number of things happened afterwards that were very interesting. Number one, the CO2 levels um, did achieve uh, net zero 
without anybody doing anything yeah. around the world and, and for about a year. So we, we all of a sudden had a net zero situation in 1991, but people weren't looking at it. They weren't paying attention. Well, they didn't, it yeah, wasn't and important it, at the time. They just didn't put the two and two together right. because when you brought it together. Yeah. When you brought it up, I'd actually had taken a class and, you know, shout out to Rick Murray in Boston University. He talked about in worst class name ever, eco-biogeochemistry, terrible name. But we talked about that iron fertilization. And at the time I was like, you know, OK, whatever. But he said, you put enough iron in the ocean, you can have another ice age. Right. Right. It's an excessive chemical reaction. Of, and he went through the whole thing, which Lord knows I don't remember it. But. You are absolutely right. Nature found a way. We right. just weren't paying attention because we didn't think about it at the time. And honestly, when I took the class in the 90s, I didn't think about it at the time. Nature, ha nature has its own processes for cleanup. Our problem is that we are, we are overpowering uh, nature's ability to keep up with us. Oh, yeah. If we let nature do its work, then we would, you know, as we did in the past, we were fine. We can survive for hopefully an indefinite period of time at, you know, 280 or 300 parts per million, but we can't at 416 or 423 or whatever Monalo is saying. Yeah, today. we tip the scale. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we need to find a way to replicate that. I mean, think about it, you know, uh, more fish, less carbon. Sounds great to me. I love that. Uh, now, you know, there's, there's a lot of controversy about it, but it's starting to, um, decrease. And in fact, the Biden administration in the Office of Science and Technology has ignited a, uh, a marine carbon capture strategy. And there's a work, nice. work group going on uh, just recently that got started on that. So that's awesome. And that's really important. And we need the government to continue to pursue that. But we also need to um, get the private sector to participate as well. And um, some people are upset and saying, well, if, you know, if we do this, then it becomes a more of a net zero. People will use it as an excuse to continue to burn fossil fuels. Well, my opinion is I think we're going to be burning fossil fuels for a while, a yeah. long while. Yeah. The global economy is engineered the way it is, but we still need a strong renewables replacement strategy over time. And uh, the bad news is we don't have time for that to catch up with us. No, and we need to. So we must we must drain that bathtub. We must get rid of these alarming levels of CO2 and give the earth literally a chance to catch a breath and to start to figure out how to repair. And so that's and you know adding on to that carbon capture though um a lot of you know this was a big hot topic at COP this year in in um in the Middle East. Basically a lot of oil and gas companies are now seeing carbon capture as their their golden ticket out of cutting back on fossil fuel production. And no, it should not be used for that. It should be used, as you said, drain that bathtub to get us back in balance. Right. But it, it's it's not the solution to just drill more. <laughs> it is not the solution to drill more. But, you know, the world being <laughs> the way humans tend to mess up the world, that may happen uh, for a while. Uh, but what's critical is to get solutions in place that we understand and that we can put in action as fast as possible and, and validate that they do what we believe they will do and that we find the answer to um, to get rid of the carbon. It, it has to be multi-tiered. Oh, yeah. There is no single full credit answer. 
they are no. all partial answers and we need them all to work we need them all to get in online very quickly and we need them to be permanent so that we can rely on the savings and and hopefully get ourselves back to a habitable uh climate in the longer term oh yeah i mean that's what i love about talking to people like you who are basically in the forefront of these technologies basically these thought groups they're saying hey we need multi solution we need many solutions to this one problem we have to go out and find these people who are coming up with renewable energy ideas, the carbon capture ideas, the different, just different ideas. We can't be doing the same thing over and over right. again. That that just obviously isn't working. And you're absolutely right. Petroleum is not going away anytime soon. We have way too many things that we make out of petroleum. <laughs> we are addicted to it. So we've got to get back to that balance and finding, you know, finding different ways to do things. Going right. back to, you know, Maybe the way things were done 50 years ago was a smarter way. Not as easy, not as convenient, but probably smarter. Just different ways of thinking. Um, so what's your opinion with the recent COP meeting? Because there was there was a lot of backlash this year. Yeah, there was. And it's like everything else. It's got so many angles <laughs> and twists and turns. But I'll tell you, um, being on this board and being a part of this movement gives me hope. So one of the reasons I joined was because I was really starting to have a lot of climate anxiety and yeah. it was literally keeping me up at night and knowing that I'm trying to put my energies towards something to help move the world somewhere positive so that we have actually a hope of getting to a good place. And COP was interesting, but one of the things that was really interesting to me was that for the first time that I can remember, there was a lot of conversation about climate, about CO2 removal. Oh. Um, you did not hear in the past the level of discussion and serious innovative thinking about what can we do to get carbon out of the atmosphere there. I mean, even if you just listened to NPR for the week and you didn't really read or do anything else, you heard it repeatedly being discussed seriously. So it's not a, you know, it's not a sideshow. It's not something that people are dismissing or they don't think it's worth talking about. People are beginning to understand it has to be part of what the world decides to do in order to save ourselves. And yeah. so, that for me was a ray of hope to say that people, broad swaths of people, leaders, um, movers and shakers in this environment are starting to understand carbon removal must be part of the strategy. And so that's, I mean, a, to me, that's a really good thing. It's and it's a change. It's just, it's a shift. So that's important. No, and it's very important that people understand, you know, a lot of people, I mean, me included, I was very critical of COP this year because it, it's more of a networking event with expense accounts. A lot of people are going that really have no interest in climate change. They're just there to network and build there businesses. Like 80,000 people there this year, something like that. Yeah, and a lot by private plane, too, which is just. Yeah, which is another. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, oh. until we get hydrogen planes and fully electric planes, just no. Well, but, I uh, just wonder how many of those planes were fueled by um, aviation, you know, the, the more sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, probably and very few. Of them were. Yeah. few if any i mean yeah. um we're getting there um but you know we just need to be smarter about how we go on these conferences in general because there are a lot of these green conferences coming up the knowledge being shared is extraordinary and i love it and the and the technology it's fantastic but we we 
we need to kind of scale it back. It's not supposed to be this big, not 80,000 yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. But um, and that's you know going back to the, your your um, carbon capture, which the sequestration that's such a hard word for people to say. <laughs> so it is. I it love is. the simplification of ca carbon capture. Just capture it. Um, that's a social justice issue as well. So people don't realize you know when you have pollutants in the air, when you have too much carbon, people are affected. You know their health is affected, and this is long term. This is generational. So the fact that we are now tying in social justice the way it should be, it shouldn't be separate sustainability, all of it, we are all intertwined together. So um, you actually, I, I'd love for you to give a shout out to a university, of, a particular university, who's the leader in this that you told me about. Right. So, um, well, just first a word about the social justice thing. I think the key piece is that the people who are most impacted need a voice at the table. So that has not been true. And so we need to make sure that as solutions get discussed and strategies get established, that the people who are actually being impacted today yeah. actually have a say in how all of this gets designed and developed. And I think that we're very committed to that. That's absolutely critical. And in your local communities, when you're thinking about what's going to happen and what you can do is to make sure that you remember that those vulnerable communities need to be included. Um, oh, well, and the, the university. So um, I'm, I've been on the board of the, uh, the Business School of American University for 27 years, I think. But AU has an amazing sustainability program now. And uh, both for the university itself, but mostly for as an academic major uh, for um, yeah. for graduate program. So it's one of the top ones uh, in the country, and um, it's making a lot of progress, making a, a big statement, and really focusing on creating the innovative energy and the momentum yes. to um, try to get us to a better place. So I'm very proud to be associated with AU. And, and it's fabulous that, you know, that they've been doing it for so long and that they're a leader in sustainability as well, identifying social justice, tying it together, but motivating the kids. Yeah. You know, so many kids have that eco anxiety or climate anxiety, and we just need to keep the positive moving forward. Absolutely. And to be honest, I'm so inspired by the young people that I meet. I mean, um, there's a... I think there's a misunderstanding in the world that these kids are, and you know, they're young adults, um, are are scared and they're not in action. But that's not true. I mean, I meet young people who are very motivated and very driven to do yeah. whatever they can do to contribute, and also to understand, you know, what the job, the workplace is going to look like with all of these new solutions and new technologies. So. They're double motivated. Mostly they're motivated to survive, but then they also understand that there's going to be opportunity in all of that. And that's really important. So my my heart is with them. And uh, I am inspired by different people I meet every single day. And they're amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the, you know, the younger ones, the kids. What I love the fact is the courage they have to stand up to some of these corporations to say, I'm not going to take this job because you guys are not doing the right thing. That's I don't believe that's ever happened before in such a magnitude of uh, such a level of large amounts of people saying, no, I'm going to work for this smaller company, make less money because they are doing the right thing. No, I have to think about that. I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there, there have been, you know, lots of movements in the past. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. And certainly people are definitely feeling more um motivated to make their voice heard for sure yeah. 
And then yeah. they're, they're not being quiet about it. They're being very, very vocal. I participated in a demonstration in the um, in Lafayette Park across from the White House on July 4th. And uh, it was really exhilarating to be there with, you know, there was a little kid running around there. The mother, you know, must have been maybe in her 30s, um, you know, people like me, grandparents, I mean, all over the map. And that's what you see when you when you participate in these activities, you see people of all age groups, which is pretty cool. The intergenerational cooperation that's going to be needed to pull all this off is is invigorating to be a part of. And so that's another great benefit of, you know, being in action in this space. And the invigoration, you're absolutely right. It, it does kind of inspire me as well when I see some of these guys doing the right thing and fighting for the right thing and just being vocal about it, not being not harassing and just being vocal and doing it very well. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about what I'm seeing lately. Um, going back to your foundation though, um, how do people find you or connect with you or um, maybe if you need volunteers or donations? Sure. Sure. Yeah. All the above, all, all the above. above, like everybody else. Um, so uh, our website is F like fork for the number four C like cat R like restoration org and so that's our website so f4cr.org uh, and you can write to me at nicole at f4cr.org um and i and i'd be delighted to um and you can also look for me on linkedin that uh, I'm, yeah. I'm there as well uh but we have chapters all over the world we've got um wonderful group actually in africa we have people all over the country we have people in uh, europe and there's some people in um in uh, the pacific so um we're we're always anxious to meet people talk with people and get them involved in using us as a channel to work in their local community so um that would be awesome and of course, I love the work that you're doing. I mean, thank you. the fact that it is worldwide, you're bringing people together, you're bringing the knowledge together and the efforts. Um, that's pretty remarkable, um, especially on oh, a global you. basis. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Well, we're all in this together, right? Technically, <laughs> yeah. yes. <laughs> well, there's so many examples um, of needing to find light in the darkness. And um, we are all one humanity. So sometimes uh we get in each other's way and that's that's very painful um in this case we've got to find a way to act yeah. together um and i hope that the f4cr can be a vehicle for helping people to find their way to do that i i think you guys are well on your way um yeah you guys are doing a great job so nicole thank you so much for your time i know you're super busy because um, F4CR is not your only foundation that you were involved in. So you are a busy gal. So thank you for your time. I do appreciate it. And, um, you know, welcome back anytime to give us updates on what you guys are doing. Well, and thanks for doing this, Wendy, and contributing to getting the word out. That is so important for people to educate themselves and to be informed about what's going on and how they can help. So thanks for doing this. And thanks for having me today. Anytime, anytime. So, um, yeah, thank you again. Um, guys, I am your host, Wendy Nystrom with Environmental Social Justice. Please check out the Foundation for Climate Restoration. Give Nicole a call. See how you guys can get involved, donate, help, do whatever you can. It's an important organization. I will talk to you guys next time. Take care. Bye.